Episode 5, Setting Up the Pieces Welcome to The Finest Half Hour Read by Richard Cutland Written by Jim Jager And brought to you with the generous help of Wargaming For the last four weeks we've talked about the tumultuous first year of the war in Europe Poland and France have been defeated Britain has just barely staved off disaster And fascists hold an iron grip on the continent Now we have to take a step back and set up the pieces To understand the Second World War, one needs to look to its origins. So today we're going to take a look at what happened to each of the major players in Europe in the interwar period from 1919 to 1939. Because it's not too much of a stretch to see the Second World War as an extension of the First. So let's start with the terrifying tragic fate of Germany. Germany, 1918. World War I is coming to an end. The Western Front has collapsed. The German people are starving. Revolution boils over. The government falls. The Kaiser flees the country. Germany is declared a republic. There's only one option for the new Weimar Republic, sue for peace. But peace will not come cheap. There are two camps among the Allies. That of the Americans, who wanted to offer Germany a lenient peace and to bring them into the society of nations, and that of the French, who want such harsh terms that Germany will never be a threat again. In the end, the French win, since, after all, they've borne the brunt of the war. Their country was turned into a battlefield, their people driven from their homes. So the peace conference becomes not a negotiation, but the delivery of an ultimatum. Germany is to lose 25,000 square miles of territory and about a tenth of its population. It is to be split into two, with a corridor cutting Prussia off from the bulk of Germany. Its colonies in Africa and the Pacific are seized. Its navy dramatically reduced. Its army limited to 100,000 men and its air force to be abolished entirely. But perhaps the most humiliating condition is that Germany must accept full responsibility for causing the war and pay enormous sums in war reparations, a debt they wouldn't finish paying until the 21st century. The first president of the new republic resigns in protest, declaring before the National Assembly, which hand, trying to put us in chains like these, would not wither. But the next president, after asking the army if they could put up any resistance to an Allied invasion, and being told no, did the only thing he could do. He signed the notorious Treaty of Versailles. So peace began for this new German Republic, but it wasn't an easy peace. From the outset, the fledgling Republic was beset with difficulties it was ill-equipped to handle. Food shortages still plagued the country. Reparation debt weighed heavily on its economy, which had yet to recover from the war. To deal with its mounting bills, the government started to print more money, sending the country into a spiral of hyperinflation, the likes of which had rarely been seen in human history. It got so bad, people were taking wheelbarrows full of money to buy basic goods. In 1918, a loaf of bread had cost half a mark. By 1923, the same bread cost 200 million marks. It was so out of control that the price of a cup of coffee would double in the time it took to drink it. And workers rushed out to buy goods the moment they got paid, because if they waited until the next day, the money they had would be made worthless. 
Hyperinflation so infected people's daily lives that a new psychological disorder developed in Germany called Zero Stroke, where the sufferer would just keep writing zeros endlessly and confused ordering numbers for gigantic ones, saying things like, I have three trillion cats, or I am 25 billion years old. To add to the Republic's woes when the government defaulted on its war debt, the French occupied the Ruhr, the industrial heartland of Germany, completely disrupting the German economy and further exacerbating the inflation crisis. The monetary disaster was finally halted when the government issued a new currency backed by land, with one of the new marks trading for one trillion of the old ones. But by this point Germany had suffered humiliation and hardship. The soil was fertile for extremist parties to emerge. Communists on the left and ultra-nationalists on the right rose up against the government. There was street fighting in the major cities. In parts of the country, attempts were made to overthrow the government, culminating with what is now known as the Beer Hall Putsch, where a few thousand of the recently formed National Socialist German Workers' Party, or Nazi Party, led by an Austrian ex-corporal named Hitler, attempted to overthrow the government in Bavaria. The coup failed and Hitler was found guilty of high treason, but he was given the lightest possible sentence, five years, and only ended serving eight months. After that, some stability was achieved. The economy began to grow and political violence lessened, but internal tensions still kept government coalitions from lasting more than a year. Meanwhile, the government and the economy became more and more dependent on loans from US banks. Then the depression hit. US banks called in their loans. The German economy went to full collapse. Unemployment rates skyrocketed, with as much as a quarter of the population out of work. Political violence broke out again. Extremism was on the rise. Communists and Nazis clashed openly in the streets. Then the unthinkable happened. In 1930, on a platform of anti-Semitism, ultra-nationalism and the promise of jobs, the Nazi party jumped from 2.6% of the vote to 18.3%, which meant that no coalition could be put together in the German parliament, the Reichstag, that was truly pro-Republican and pro-democratic. In 1932, with the centre-left unable to come together as a bloc and the communists declaring, much to their later regret, that the slightly less left-wing parties were social fascists and a greater enemy than the Nazis, Hitler ran for president against the conservative monarchist Paul von Hindenburg. He didn't win, but through a campaign of racial hate and street intimidation, he ended up with almost 40% of the vote, and his Nazi party became the largest bloc in the Reichstag. Soon the conservative government, afraid of communism, made Hitler chancellor. Four weeks later, the Reichstag building mysteriously caught fire and Chancellor Hitler used it as an excuse to suspend civil liberties, censor the press and suppress the Communist Party. Less than a month after that, with a combination of threats from the SA thugs, the Nazi Party's original paramilitary wing, and national security fear-mongering, Hitler got the Enabling Act passed, a law which allowed him to ignore the Reichstag and, essentially, gave him supreme power in Germany. 
Almost immediately, he began a massive rearmament program in violation of the Versailles Treaty. At first, it began covertly, with commercial flight schools being set up to secretly train pilots, scouting clubs being established to train soldiers, and dummy corporations being set up to create the heavy industry that would churn out the weapons of modern war. From there, he went on to clean house. On the night of the Long Knives in 34, he and many of the leaders of the SA, the Nazi street thugs who had brought him to power, murdered, consolidating the party in his hands. At the same time, he used the bloodletting to silence critics and, claiming that he was putting down an imminent rebellion, got the courts, eager to show how loyal they were, to throw out centuries of German law and declare legal the party's use of extrajudicial killing, essentially making Hitler above the law and the sole arbiter of justice in Germany. With complete power, he was now ready to put into practice the next step of his plan, the expansion of Germany. In 1935, he threw off the shackles of the Versailles Treaty and openly declared German rearmament. Would the old allies respond? Would they take action against the flagrant violation of the treaty? No. This emboldened Hitler. In 1936, he took his first great step towards German expansion. He reoccupied the Rhineland, the area on Germany's western border, which had been demilitarized by the Treaty of Versailles, in order to leave the German industrial heartland vulnerable if war were to break out. On March the 7th, the day of the occupation, tension ran through the cabinet. Many had advised against the move. The army wasn't ready. The air force wasn't ready. Work on the navy had barely begun. Even Hitler was hedging his bets. He'd issued orders for his troops to withdraw if they met any resistance at all. But again, the Allies did nothing. His gamble had worked. His prestige swelled. His authority grew. His next gamble would be bigger. His next action would be more aggressive. He would go after Austria. He fomented the Nazi party there to embark on a campaign of terrorism, murder and intimidation to force the country to give up sovereignty and join Germany. But the government refused. They said they were going to put it to a public vote to let the people decide if Austria should join Germany. This would never stand. Hitler couldn't allow a fair vote that he'd probably lose. So again, he rolled the dice. Using the excuse that they were coming to ensure a fair vote and to quell riots which they claimed were aimed at suppressing the pro-German vote, Hitler's troops marched into Austria. Then Hitler, to show the world he was only doing the will of the Austrian people, held his own vote on whether Austria should become part of Germany. And, wouldn't you know it, according to the Nazis, 99.7561% voted yes. But the world could still weigh in. It was the first time since 1918 that German forces had set foot in another country. It was the first time the Nazi Germany had violated the sovereignty of another state. How would the major powers react? Largely with a collective shrug. Czechoslovakia was next. Nazis in the largely German part of the country, called the Sudetenland, began to agitate for independence. Czechoslovakia refused. Hitler threatened war. The Czech state called its allies, Britain and France, to its defence. But instead of defending Czechoslovakia, the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, 
and the French Prime Minister, Édouard Deladier, agreed to settle the matter by holding a four-power talk between Britain, France, Germany and Italy. Czechoslovakia wasn't invited. There they agreed to, you've probably guessed it, give in to Hitler's demands. Czechoslovakia lost their Sudetenland, its mountainous industrialised bulwark, its strongest defence. Without this, it was helpless. Within months, it ceased to exist as a nation, gobbled up by Germany and the other countries that surrounded it. And yet, the old Allied powers of World War I did nothing. Chamberlain even came back to Britain declaring that he had secured peace in our time. This led Hitler to think that the other major powers were weak, afraid of war, and that they'd never stand up to his new Germany if it meant they'd have to fight. Which leads us back to 1939. Hitler had his sights on another nation to the east, Poland. Surely he could march in there as easily as the rest. He'd even secured a secret pact with the Soviet Union to make sure that they wouldn't interfere. And there's no way the timid democracies of Europe would finally stir, would finally declare war over a nation so far away, right? Which brings us to the British Empire. 1918. Britain had won the war, but at what cost? It is heavily in debt to the United States. Nearly a million of its young men lie dead in the fields of France, and the empire is beginning to unravel. It may not look like it. In fact, in 1918, the British Empire was the largest it had ever been. But underneath, the cracks are beginning to spread. In the First World War, the British summoned troops from all over their colonies and dominions to fight in the war. Millions of men from across the globe came to Europe and saw that the British were not invincible, that they needed them to survive. And among those millions, many returned home thinking Britain owed them a debt that their sacrifice meant something, that with it they had bought greater rights for their people. Yet, when the war ended, neither the Treaty of Versailles nor the British government acknowledged that debt. In India, a movement for independence began. Ireland, which had rebelled during the war, fully broke from the UK, and the dominions Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa ceased taking orders from the mother country essentially becoming countries in their own right. And so the giants stood on wobbly legs. There were fears at the highest levels that the empire was unravelling. Britain couldn't afford another major shock. Even if they won, the empire might not survive another war. So for more than a decade after the First World War, the UK spent little on defence, confident that no war would come so soon after the devastation the Great War had wrought. The public too had no enthusiasm for conflict, and so a policy of appeasement began, where small nations were sacrificed to rising dictators on the continent in the naive hope that it might stop all-out war, leaving Britain underarmed and under-equipped, with a sprawling empire to defend and all their old allies on the continent under the Nazi yoke when war finally came to the Imperial Island. France, 1918 France is exhausted. War has ravaged its economy, moored its populace and left it in a deep malaise. Its leaders and its people cry for revenge. Germany must be humiliated. It must be torn asunder and reduced to the point where it can never make war again. 
For everyone in France knows that if Germany can, it will, and that war will come to France. Harsh terms are demanded at Versailles, but compromises are made. The people are left unsatisfied. While the penalties inflicted on Germany are severe, they're merely enough to wound the beast, to enrage it, not to kill it like they'd hoped. So France embarks on a defensive policy. They live with the nightmare of the last war returning, of trenches once again being carved through the heart of France. So they pour money into creating a massive fortification network along the border with Germany, the Maginot Line. They design tanks that trade mobility for armour and armament, perfect for a grinding war of attrition, but ill-suited to the lightning war that they are about to face. At the same time, France oscillates widely between political extremes. Then, the Great Depression hits. A series of disastrous economic policies, coupled with massive strikes, cripple France. While books are burning in Germany, the French factories grind to a halt. Recriminations fly, but the hour grows late. The economic disaster means, even if they could, they'll never produce enough modern arms in time. And unity will never be found. As Germany overruns Poland, the government of France will be busy rounding up communists rather than preparing for the fascist threat. USSR, 1917. The Eastern Front has collapsed. The Tsarist Empire is crumbling. The people rise up. It is a time of revolution. Red and white armies, communists and anti-communists, surge across the great expanse of Russia. The communists win, but the empire is gone. Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland declare their independence. Ukraine is split between the new Soviet Union and Poland, and Turkey absorbs much of the old Tsarist states by the Caspian Sea. The Soviet Union is still the largest contiguous nation in the world, but famine follows war and the people starve in this new nation based on equality. The fledgling Soviet state is near collapse, held back from the brink by American aid workers distributing food to tens of millions of people. Still, during the lean years of 1921 and 1922, five million people in Russia starved to death, but the state survives. Both Lenin and his eventual successor, Stalin, realised the urgency of modernising the Soviet Union. It severely lacks roads, railroads, electricity and heavy industry. Its system of farming is archaic at best, and its financial institutions lag behind those of Europe. A radical programme of modernisation is needed, and Stalin is willing to go even further than his predecessor in how radical that programme will be. After a few years consolidating his position through intimidation, political manoeuvring and the expansion of the secret police, Stalin began the great work in earnest. He started to collectivise the farms, bringing them all under state control. His plan was simple. He'd used the sale of Soviet Union's agriculture to fund its industrial revolution. But peasant uprisings took place and in response a programme of persecution and terror was put into place to destroy the middle-class peasantry. Farm productivity plummeted. Starvation again gripped the Soviet Union. Millions more died. But through all this, Stalin brought food to the cities. 
making sure that factory workers could eat even while the peasants starved, because he needed to increase production. With the state in total control, he embarked on his ambitious five-year plan to dramatically increase Soviet industrial output. With wages set artificially low and severe penalties for missing work, the Soviet Union began to close the industrial gap with the Western powers. But Stalin was a man ruled by fear, fear of being overthrown from within, fear of being invaded from without. And soon this fear turned to paranoia, and paranoia turned the state into a police state. Stalin banned opposition parties, and even opposition within the Soviet ranks. The secret police spied on everyone. Neighbour denounced neighbour. Soon arrests became common. Everyone lived in fear of appearing on one of Stalin's lists. For those on the lists disappeared in the night to be tortured, shot or sent to the gulag in Siberia where they were to be worked to death. Intellectuals, former members of non-communist parties, clergy and military officers were all purged. Anyone with any power, any sway of the people was executed. Even devoted members of the party, communists who had fought alongside Lenin during the revolution, anyone who didn't owe their influence entirely to Stalin, were killed or ruined in his great purge. The Soviet experiment, the great communist nation where all were to be equal, was now well and truly a dictatorship. It was in this state, with its officer corps in tatters, its intellectual class condemned to break rocks in Siberia, and its political opposition extinguished that the USSR entered World War II. Italy, 1915. Italy enters the First World War. They've abandoned their former allies, the Germans, to come in on the side of the Triple Entente, the French, British and Russian alliance. The cost is enormous, but it will be worth it for the territory that they will gain. 1919. Italy is denied her promised reward. Much of the land that was used to entice them into the war is carved up among other states. The Treaty of Versailles is seen by many Italians as a betrayal. One of those who sees it as such is the ex-socialist Benito Mussolini. He starts a new political party, the National Fascist Party, which aims to recapture the glory of ancient Rome and dominate the Mediterranean Sea through force of arms. In 1922, fascist street thugs marched on the capital and overthrew the government, elevating Mussolini to prime minister. Conservatives amongst the government thought they might be able to use him to combat communism and prevent a socialist revolution. But within a few years, they had been swept aside and Mussolini became Il Duce, the supreme dictator of Italy. He embarked on a three-part policy of territorial expansion, industrialization, and autarky, or resource independence from the rest of the world. Economically, Italy had lagged behind the other major European powers at the start of the First World War, and, for all his talk of getting the trains running on time, Mussolini's economic programs were a disaster. They succeeded in giving the state control of businesses, but did little to grow the economy or move people into the industrial sector. Despite this, Mussolini began a series of costly territorial wars, trying to retake the old Roman provinces in North Africa and Southeast Europe. 
While these wars were largely successful, they depleted Italy's military and industrial resources, and to anyone watching, showed just how disastrously weak and outdated the Italian army was. Economically and militarily, it would be woefully unready for the war that was to come. USA, 1918. The First World War is at an end, and America is riding high. President Woodrow Wilson flies to Europe for the peace talks. He doesn't want territorial concessions. He doesn't demand reparations. He wants just one thing, a League of Nations. An international body to encourage disarmament, ensure the basic rights of people, and make certain that this sort of catastrophic war never happens again. But when he returns to the States, in the last great disappointment of his life, Congress refuses to ratify America's participation in the League of Nations, dooming it from the start. But the Roaring Twenties saw America throw off the cares of the war. Life got back to normal. Americans continued to prosper. The stock market continued to climb. It was the decade of women's suffrage, prohibition and jazz. Gliding comfortably by with a series of mediocre presidents, it looked like the United States could at last enjoy its place as one of the foremost powers in the world. Then, on October the 24th, 1929, the stock market crashed. Banks began to fail, capital dried up, unemployment started to skyrocket. A new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, swept into office with crushing electoral victories in 1932 and again in 1936. He regulated the stock market, created social security, set up housing programs, expanded federal employment, and electrified and brought modern farming techniques to the impoverished South. The one thing he did not do was expand the army. After the expense and loss of life in the First World War, America turned inward, not wanting to be drawn into another international conflict. As the privation of the Depression increased, the American people became even more isolationist, wanting to focus on the problems at home and avoid entanglements in what they saw as European problems. Roosevelt, an ardent anti-fascist, desired to help those standing against Nazi aggression. But all throughout the 1930s, Congress passed what it called Neutrality Acts, tying the president's hands and hamstringing his ability to place sanctions on belligerents or even provide material aid to nations involved in foreign wars. And though he tried to circumvent these acts in whatever way he could, it wouldn't be until 1941 and the Lend-Lease programme that Roosevelt truly succeeded. Roosevelt knew that the American people were tired. Tired from the First World War, tired from the Depression. He knew they wouldn't support America entering the growing conflict in Europe. As late as the end of 1940, only 15.9% of the population were in favour of America entering the war. So he did what he could and waited for something momentous, something startling, to wake America from the daydream that events around the world didn't affect it. Thus the United States didn't begin to rearm until the eve of the war. In 1939 America had barely 200,000 soldiers in its army, making it smaller than that of Portugal and just a tad larger than that of Bulgaria. Much of the US air fleet was obsolete, 
and there were only 20,000 Marines for a possible confrontation in the Pacific. Of the services, the Navy alone was really world-class, and even it was ill-prepared for a submarine war. So the US embarked on the largest armament programme in the history of the world, becoming the arsenal of democracy. But other countries would have to use those arms, to trade blood for time, to buy the months and years necessary for the United States to truly be ready to fight. We've set the stage, the pieces have been placed and the board prepared. It's time now that we return to the war, so join us next time for the struggle to control Britain's economic lifeline, the Battle of the Atlantic.